Have you ever suspected someone had a mental health issue and asked them were they okay? What if they said no? Would you have the skills to non-judgmentally have a conversation around mental health? Our guest on the Reset podcast today is Dr. Claire Kelly. She's the head of research and curriculum at Mental Health First Aid. Mental Health First Aid is a fantastic organisation that teaches people how to have conversations around mental health that help. Claire is one of Australia's leading experts in non-suicidal self-injury, and her insights into this is going to help anyone that's having problems with mental health. So, Claire Kelly, welcome to the Reset Podcast. Is it good being you? Is it good being me? Look, I've got sunflowers. I've got a cat yeah. here. I've got another one over here. Very good being me. It's today. awesome being you, then, isn't it? <laughs> yes, and thanks for having me on. My pleasure. But I, it, it's amazing some of the work that you do. Um, I might let you tell us about you know what what does a typical day of Claire Kelly involve, and and tell us about all the work that you do in mental health. I hope you have a few hours. Um, Look, I don't think that there is a typical day in the life of Claire Kelly. I'm the Director of Research and Curriculum at Mental Health First Aid. So I actually oversee three teams, uh, the research team, the curriculum team, and the instructor uh, quality and accreditation team, as well as I do uh, a lot of the, uh, all of the the mentoring for our new international uh, licensees which uh, these days is happening over Zoom. I've done it a few times over Zoom now, but usually involves going over to uh, meet a, a team of people and talk them through their, their translation and their adaptation and, and all of that good stuff, as well as, of course, work that we do with the University of Melbourne. At the moment, um, lots of work on our on a manual for mental health first aid in China, um, which has been wow. informed by expertise in China from um, consumers, people with lived experience, as well as experts. How is so mental health in lots China? Lots of things. It must be communist governments and some of the freedoms that we take for granted aren't there. How, how is their mental health? Do we know? Uh, look, we don't really know. Um, we can make the assumption that the rates of mental illness are, are potentially quite a bit higher, but... There's, there really aren't reliable statistics. I mean, for example, the uh, even looking at something like the suicide rate, I think that their official suicide rate is lower than ours and no one actually believes that that is the case. It's, <laughs> that's really about, you know, the, the, when you're talking about government-published statistics, it's uh, very much a question of how were they uh, collected, how are they being reported. So Yeah, it does make it tough. So. So for for people that don't know what mental health first aid is, and, I, and I'm going to pretend I'm I'm not a mental health first aid instructor during this, so we're just going <laughs> to I'm going to test me as if I don't know some of this stuff. Okay, so all right, tell us what mental health first aid is. Okay, well, look, it's actually really useful to think of mental health first aid uh, by picturing physical first aid first. So we're really talking about the help that's given when someone is developing a mental health problem or in a mental health crisis or who has an existing problem which is currently worsening, so it might be a, a new episode of depression or a new episode of psychosis. And it's the help that the, that the mental health first aider gives until either prof- appropriate professional help has been received or in the case of a crisis, the crisis might actually resolve. Right. But it is also it's different from physical first aid because Mental health problems don't develop in a flash 
And physical first aid is often, you know, we're, we're giving the help when someone's fallen over and broken their, their wrist or yeah. when they've just experienced a heart attack and we're supporting them until an ambulance can arrive. Whereas with mental health first aid, because it can take time for the, the problem to actually develop, and um, and time for it to resolve as well, of course. It means that having a few people around any one person who actually know a little bit about mental health and how they can have a supportive, non-judgmental conversation uh, means really that they're just that part, much more it, likely. The, the not judgmental is a really it's huge. Part. It's huge, and you know, it's not it's not just about being non-judgmental. It's actually about making the person really feel that they're not being judged. Uh, actually going out of your way to to ensure that you have listened without sort of saying, well, we've got to make changes here. This isn't good. No, we've got to stop <laughs> drinking like that or whatever it might be that's not helpful. So it's um it's really about setting aside any judgments that you do have and also making the effort to make sure that what you do say comes across as being really compassionate and non-judgmental and empathetic. Yeah. Do you, like, you using the word empathy there, It's that's it's always a, really how how do we sort of work out how to be empathetic in a way that that is non-judgmental and you know what what, what sort of tips would you give people for having that conversation it's not an easy one to have it's really not and um I think that you know there's always that sort of are we talking about empathy are we talking about sympathy and and I actually think that some of the definitions have gone a little bit fuzzy now but I think what's your take on probably that? the look I feel as if um sometimes sympathy is appropriate when someone's having a rough time we can feel bad for them you know it's not I don't believe that sympathy and pity are the same thing right. um but when someone's grieving you know we feel sad for them mm-hmm. and and that's okay but for me empathy is about trying to understand what the person might be experiencing and how we can best support them so it's not necessarily about well I'm just going to imagine what it would be like if I was in this terrible episode of depression but yeah. it is about saying, well, this person is really right now. Perhaps they don't feel as if they deserve the help that they that I know that they would really benefit from, or um, they're living in a situation where seeking professional help is going to be really tough. Might be for cultural reasons or financial reasons, and trying to tailor the support that you give um, in a way that recognises their unique situation. To me, I think that's the most important thing. Because mental health first aid, it's not about being a counsellor, is it? You're not there to, no. to fix their problems. We've got to make a really no. definite line under that, isn't it? But that's not. It is really important, and and you're not making a diagnosis either, ever. You can recognise a cluster of symptoms that suggest that a person might have a mental health problem, and that can, and having an understanding about that can make it a little bit easier to have a conversation with them about it. Um, if we recognise that, well, if somebody feels uh, really worried and and upset and maybe even distressed in particular sort of situations and and that recurs then we might think that yeah this looks like an anxiety disorder it doesn't mean that we say i'm diagnosing you with x illness yeah but it means that you can have enough of a conversation with them so that you can encourage them to find out some more information you know if they want to do that before they consider professional help for example and that's kind of what it is it's kind of like triage isn't it you're you're sort of triaging a little bit what's going on and sort of working out where the best place to to get them to get the help they need. Yeah, I, I think triaging is probably not a bad way to think about, it, especially when we sometimes we're talking about a fairly mild problem. Um, mm. It might be the beginning stages of something. Perhaps someone has over time started finding it harder to feel 
cheerful in places, in situations that they would usually feel cheerful or, you know, it's just getting really hard to get out of bed in the morning. It's getting, so not enjoying mm, the things that would normally yeah, enjoy. Yeah, yeah, and it's sort of, but it's only the beginnings there. And, and knowing a little bit about some of the, the evidence-based self-help strategies that are available, people might be able to make some changes of their own. For others, it's going to be really important to seek professional help. And that is, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about professional help and this idea that, oh, you'll just automatically be given a prescription and they're just happy pills and it just masks the problem. Yeah. Actually, the vast majority of people have great benefit from psychotherapy, from talking mm -hmm. therapies, um, which are very much about learning the skills to cope and the, the skills to, to manage uh, emotions rather than being about, you know, thinking about everything that's ever happened in your past and why you might be feeling bad. But yeah. even if it's medication, if things are more severe and perhaps the person can't even engage in psychotherapy, it, it's not something that we need to be afraid of. It's not something that masks the problem. It can help to uh, correct some of the, the little bit wonky brain chemicals that might be going on there and, and make it easier for the person to start doing the things that they need to do to really act for their own recovery. Yeah, what are what there's are lots the of different levels? There's there's like three things <clears throat> you really want to look at with a with any sort of mental health condition and the impact of it, the intensity of it, and the duration. Is that can you take us through how those three play a big a big role? I, I'm going to take it one step back and make it a little bit simpler. The way that uh, I often think that the way that we teach to teenagers sometimes is actually the way that we should be talking to all sorts of members of the public. A mental health problem is where there are major changes in thoughts and feelings and behaviour right. that are having an impact on day-to-day -day yeah. functioning uh, in some or maybe all areas and that last for longer than we would expect a transient mood to last for. Right. So changes so right, that though, get in the way. Well, I, I think that that's okay for a mental health first aider. I think it's... Yeah. For a for a clinician making a decision about, well, oh, does this need what sort of treatment might be appropriate for yep. this? Yeah, so it is a little bit vague, but it's actually it is still a really good measure to sort of say, am I ready to start this conversation? Is it time to have a conversation? It's not this person clearly needs treatment because it's been two bad weeks in a row. It's mm -hmm. I'm concerned enough at this point so that we might need to have a conversation. I wrote and, a thing um, in my book yeah. that. There was a line that I got from a, a psychiatrist in the States and it was like, if it can be fixed by $5,000 or a new boyfriend, it's not depression. And um, <laughs> I think that was probably a little bit simplistic, but it seemed it seemed kind of appropriate. You know, I, <laughs> yeah, it's totally simplistic. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the point is that if a person can uh, is able to take pleasure from a new relationship or, or $5,000, new car, whatever it might be, then, yeah, probably I would say that it's pretty reasonable to say that that's probably not depression. I mean, yeah. certainly we still get changes in mood with depression. I mean, someone who's been really struggling, there might be a particular thing that generally cheers them up for a little while, but it's not going to fix depression. It's it's going to take more than that. A person needs to really learn, again, how to uh, evaluate their own thoughts without judging their own thoughts and uh, take the, the time to apply some, I guess, critical thinking to your own thinking. You know, one of my um, my favourite little quotes uh, from Byron Katie actually is, uh, don't believe everything you feel. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's She's really... awesome, isn't she? She's... Just... I love that have do be be do have swapping that yeah. around the other way as well. She's yeah, yeah. She's a pretty impressive person. Yeah, and I think that it's yeah, it's definitely when you know, feelings are facts, <laughs> mm-hmm. and although we definitely we might get a little boost from something nice happening, or you know, feel, feel better one day because of seeing someone, depression's not going to be gone because of any of that. It, it is going to take time to to recover. And it can take a long time. But, we, you know, the sooner somebody gets help and the sooner somebody gets the right help for them, for the severity of what they're experiencing or for um, uh, with some the time that it might take to find what they really do respond to, whether that's a particular medication or some particular activities that they might undertake, it does tend to take a while. Yeah. The sooner the better. And well, that, that's a really good point. The sooner the better. That we're they're discovering very much that if you that the age of onset of a lot of this stuff, it seems to be getting a lot younger. Is, is that your take on it? And why do you think that Ooh. is? And what do you feel about it. It's um look. It's really hard to say whether this has been a change over time because there hasn't been enough attention paid to youth mental health sort of before about the last twenty twenty five years. Yeah. Uh, so it's really hard to know whether it's changed since then, but certainly adolescence is the peak age of onset for for any kind of mental illness. And, and in fact, half of all people who will ever have a mental illness in their life will have had their first episode by the age of 18. It's often not going to be their worst episode, mm-hmm. but it's, it's almost, it, it, there's a lot of different explanations for why this might be. Certainly part of it may well be neurological, that uh, the earlier that this happens when you're talking about adolescent brains are super squishy. You know, there's yeah. all kinds of stuff going on. They're figuring out the right pathways. Super and squishy. Super, super squishy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, if we think about it like this, if you think about the, the things that a young person spends a lot of time on, um, if they are spending Bones. a lot of time doing things, well, I was going to start with music and mathematics and art which are, and languages, which are often on very similar sort of neural pathways. The more time they spend on those things as an adolescent, the the stronger those particular connections will be. And if a young person is really focused on I'm trash, no one likes me, I'm never going to do anything with my life, those are neural connections that they are working on at that age as well. Yeah. So it's really so even if that first episode is not the worst one or the longest lasting one, it's often it is that is one possibility for why we get better outcomes when we get in earlier. Yeah. Um I watched the social dilemma, which I'm I'm sure you've seen that, and I'm not sure where they got a lot of their stats from, but one of the things that they were talking about was since the invention of the iPhone, the incidence of non-suicidal self-injury have have gone up. I think it was like 350% in the last. I don't know whether how sensationalised that is, but you know, that's one of your areas of expertise. Is it, yeah. is it as bad as that, do you think, or is it? Um, look, I, the reason that I, I, I don't want to answer that question directly is that I'm, there's never been great statistics before sort of 2008 um, when Graham Martin here in Australia uh, did the the first national survey of um of non-suicidal self-injury, which is the best of its kind in the world um, at the time. Can we just explain to everyone what that is? Ah, okay. So um, a simple definition is that it is 
uh, an injury that a person does to themselves. Um, and I do mean injury, not, you know, we can do all sorts of things that might harm ourselves, like eat too much or eat too little or, and all of those things are harmful. But when we're talking about self-injury, we're talking about an injury generally to the skin that is done as a way of uh, relieving an emotional state that is not intended to result in the person's death. So it's often the, the most common forms of self-injury are scratching or cutting the skin and also hit, either hitting an object like hitting a wall or hitting yourself. So those are the, those are the main things. And it um, it's really it's often where there's a, a mood state that is just currently unbearable and we want to change that mood state just enough to get through the next little while. And while most people are able to self-soothe by picking up the phone, spending time with someone, doing something active, doing something to get their mind off it, for, for some people that's extremely difficult to do and remaining focused on that pain is is the sort of default mode until they act on their urge to injure. So if you if you were a parent and, like, this would obviously be devastating for a parent as well, the the child's obviously going through something that's that's really really difficult for them. What advice would you give to a parent if they, you know, discovered that that this was happening to their son or daughter? Look, first thing is I will say, stay calm. There are a lot of devastating things that could happen to your son or daughter, and self injury is certainly not the worst of them. Um, I think that this is really important that we keep this response in proportion. And in fact, the vast majority of self injury is very superficial injury to the skin. So if nothing else, uh, you've got the opportunity right then to, instead of responding to the injury, recognise that that injury is a symptom of the underlying distress and upset and see that you've got an opportunity now to start the conversation. I think that there's often such a strong reaction when somebody discovers that their son or daughter is engaging in self-injury that it's, we're going to gr- take you off to the GP, we're going to get you into counselling, I'm going to take you to the hospital you know, for an injury that is medically superficial and does not require being seen in hospital. And what happens then? It goes underground. You know, they're going to be a lot more careful to make sure that you don't notice it next time. So actually just saying, well, you know, I, I noticed that you've got those cuts on your skin and, and I know that sometimes when people are having a really tough time uh, with the way that they're feeling that they do engage in self-injury. And I'm just wondering if that's what's happening with you. Because I'd really like to talk about it and offer you some support. It was much Keep more of a question than an accusation, wasn't it? Mm. The way you said yeah. that was just like, yeah, I'm I'm here to help. Can I find some more information? Can you tell me some more about what's going on with you? Rather than you know, don't do that. Why are you doing that? Yeah, focusing on the self injury, trying to focus on getting the person to stop injuring themselves. As as hard as this is. That's not where you want to be focused. It's not what you want to do. You actually want to recognise that the the self injury it it happens because the environment is currently too distressing because the emotions are are too much for whatever it is, and the the injury is is the symptom. So focusing on uh, helping a person to find better coping strategies. This is long term stuff, and very much you know what a clinician and and um and and hopefully you know family can can support this process as well, but. How do we make the environment less distressing? How do we improve the coping strategies that will reduce the self-injury? Yeah. You know, that's where it, it's sort of got to happen in that order. It really does. And, and again, um, it, it's, it's got to be in proportion to what's actually being seen. There's, there's nothing, 
Now, if we say, oh, my God, what have you done to yourself? You stop. Are you trying to kill yourself? Why are you trying to kill yourself? Those sorts of really, that is all super emotional. You're not going to do really anything strong stupid, language. Oh, there you go. Yeah, absolutely, which we know could be, first of all, it's very clear what you want the answer to be, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, we've got to see it as an opportunity. I think that people often, um, we can forget that, People use the language that is familiar to them, the language that they feel able to use. And if they don't have the language to say, I'm really struggling, I don't know why I've got these huge feelings, but I'm, I can't cope with them and sometimes I want to cut myself. You know, no one's going to say that. No. But they may cut. And if we recognise that this is a communication as well sometimes, and it's not to say that this is attention-seeking behaviour, now, it's really important. Yeah, it's a real see, clear I, definition with that, isn't it? Oh, it's not it, only attention-seeking behaviour. No, and, and if it is attention-seeking behaviour, if the person is trying to attract your attention, it's because they need it. <laughs> um, Look away fact, from your phone studies, and pay attention to your kid. <laughs> studies suggest that 100% of humans need attention. <laughs> and uh, we know that, you know, when, when somebody's struggling, they need a little bit more attention. But it's when we say, I mean, oh, gosh, you know, if I was – you know, if you spot somebody waving off the beach saying, help me, help me, I'm drowning, we don't say, you know, that's not appropriate language to use. Yeah. You know, you're right for swimming outside me. the flags. <laughs> yeah, they're just after attention. You know, we just, it's, we just got, we need to recognise that um, if, if a person is seeking attention, it's because they need attention. And instead it's often regarded as, as being manipulative in some way. Um, the vast majority of people who injure themselves can go to incredible lengths to conceal those injuries um, and will, you know, if they, it's amazing to me that someone who has gone to great lengths to conceal their injuries and then someone sees it, the, the response to that can be, oh, this attention-seeking behaviour. Yeah. Like, nope, that's the exact opposite, okay? Yeah, They're really distressed that you're aware of this right now, yeah. I think the first thing you said to me really hit home, just to stay calm yourself. Yeah. You know, because that, that panic is contagious, isn't it? If you start panicking, I'm going to start panicking and we're, and we're both just going to keep upping the levels and and yes. that being able to be the be the adult in that situation and be able to take a breath and, you know, also being able to there's a lot of um, a lot of parents that almost live a bit vicariously through their kids in terms of their kids are such a reflection of them. And if that's happening to you, then that's a bad reflection of me, which is a horrendous way to be, but it's really quite common. So it is how to, how do parents catch themselves with that sort of thinking and, and what should they do about it? You know, I think it's, it's, it can really sort of feel like, well, if this is happening, it's because I have to have done something wrong. I must be the worst parent. I yeah. should have spotted this earlier. And, um, you know, I, I absolutely believe that 99.99% of parents do the absolute best that they can with what they've got. And it yeah. might be maybe your kids are, are not quite like you. Maybe you don't quite understand everything about them. Maybe you, uh, for, for whatever reason, it hasn't always been easy to be around all the time. I mean, uh, parents, a number of people working, you know, really difficult hours and, and maybe not always able to even be in the same city as their kids. You know, it's hard. All of that makes it hard, and that's certainly not anyone's fault. But I think something that is really useful to sort of keep in mind is um, the way that that worry, that fear is actually expressed. Um, there's, uh, there's been some interesting research um, done looking at the way that young people interpret um, facial expressions. 
Okay. And they've actually there's actually some evidence that particularly if they do have some emotional difficulties, if they are more anxious, more emotional, or um, have more difficulty managing their own anger, that they will interpret the expression of an adult who is worried or scared as being angry. angry. So wow. when I go, oh, my God, I must be the worst parent in the world because my kid um, is injuring themselves, and we go in with this guilt, this fear, this holy crap, what happened, what they can see is mum's angry. Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> try not to uh, – I, I, I don't think that it's possible to really distance yourself emotionally from that, and, and trying is probably going to be really, really hard as well. But actually just sort of slowing down and saying, okay, this is not about me. This is yeah. absolutely not about me. I reckon that's the first line, isn't it? It's not about mm. you, parent. It's about it's about the kid. Yep. And, um, yeah, they've got some things that they don't know how to deal with and we've got to help them find someone will help them find those tools. That's exactly it. Yeah, the interesting thing is I think um, perhaps because there's this feeling that it's a new thing and it's it's certainly not a new thing, although... I know I said earlier I wouldn't put a specific uh, percentage on this, but yeah. certainly it does appear that there is an increase in the population of self-injury over the last sort of 15, 20 years. Hard to actually quantify that, but it is probably there. What's um, your gut feeling on whether how much of that is due to, you know, weapons of mass distraction and phones and things like that? I know, I know you, you're you a know scientist what, I, and you don't I, like to me... say it without the evidence. But, um, <laughs> um, let me finish my thought and I'll come back to that because it is a really good question. But um, the thing is that because it seems unusual and new, there's a, there's a great deal of fear behind it and, and a great deal of stigma. But, in fact, I, th- I think that it's useful to compare it to something like, you know, 20 years ago or actually peaking in the late 80s, kids were much more likely to be using a lot of drugs or a lot of alcohol and crashing cars because they were driving drunk. Right. Um, a lot of the behaviours that were causing our parents' fear and their parents' fear is actually, you know, in a lot of ways things are a little bit better. But So we've got to sort of keep this in proportion. Just because it's something that's new to us or appears to be new doesn't mean that it requires this really overwhelming strong response. Yeah, it's, okay. uh, I guess it's I said the same thing about radio, of, that that was going to ruin your brains and so was TV uh, was going to rottle our brains when, you know, my age were kids. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't. And I'm kind of hoping phones will swing back and not be have such a detrimental effect down yeah. the track. But it's yeah, it's, look, it's I hard hope to so see it well. at the moment because it, they do seem to be permeating every part of our world. It's true. I think that there's you know there are a lot of different aspects to it. The the way that um, our life can be so casually curated, and that we compare our average day with someone's best day with a stylist and all the rest of it. And yeah, a filter and a Yes, yes, and a lovely painted on sky, and um, and uh, I mean, and that's just around sort of body image and and uh, fear of missing out. I mean, even when we talk about the way that uh, people can treat social media, the way that a lot of others, you know, in historically we might have written in our diaries. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not suggesting that I've got 25 years worth of diaries tucked away in the top of a cupboard somewhere that I'm really glad are not on Facebook. But that's, you know, it's really it's that very sort of things that we might have said to our diaries once are now going on Facebook or on Instagram or, or wherever it is, and that can, in a way, amp us up as well. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, everyone's distressed. 
people are trying might be trying to offer support but they're burnt out by it as well and then yeah I mean look I there's a whole lot of different things that are going on but add on top of all of that the fact that often devices are being used until late at night Mm -hmm. which means that it's a lot harder to get to sleep yes and so just you know when I do sort of feed the beast in a way one thing I find when I do workshops is that I ask where people leave their phones at night and 90% of people have them right next to their bed and it becomes the first thing they look at when they start yeah. their day. Yeah. As, as, as someone who's a, a mental health professional, how, how do you see that as affecting, you know, the, the whole lot of it? Look, I think in a whole lot of different ways and probably different people in different ways, um, I, I, I'm really careful not to discount the good side of it as well. I think that mm. particularly for people who feel marginalised, their social life might be very much attached to their phone. Um, it can be the source of support and, and friendships and all the rest of it. But I also, I mean, I, I, I've, I've seen it myself that, you know, teenagers can say, okay, I'm going to bed now. And then they sign, you know, they put down their phone and five minutes later they're back saying, I can't sleep. Yeah, okay. So, you know, there's there's a bit of a mis- a bit of a failure to quite understand the impact that um, that that blue light might be having on them as well. But I actually, you know, compared to all of that, compared to the lights and the social media, there is so much anger online. Mm -hmm. There's so many opportunities to really... Be mean. Be mean and to read mean people and to really get the, you know, if somebody is really loud and really sure they're right and they're angry about it there's something that feels kind of righteous about it when you read it yeah that guy must be right because jesus using all caps and it's bold yeah <laughs> uh, really frightening um uh, talk of violence and misogyny and all that sort of really there's there, there's never a small response if somebody says something awful they're cancelled it's not hey you want to think about rewording that a little bit might be helpful to understand that using language like that upsets X people, or yeah. I, I I would prefer that you didn't call someone crazy. You know, instead, it's this person's cancelled. They're ableist, they're, and the, that that sense of anger or you know, the ah, oh, Luke, what am I saying? Look, it's I, I just feel I get like it. The, a, yeah, it's it's it's, it's just, almost like outrage porn. Yeah, it's outrage point. If I, if I say I'm really something really outrageous and this yeah. is terrible, then more eyes are going to look at it. I'm going to get more likes. I'm going to get way bigger dopamine hit from it. Oh, surprise, surprise! I'm going to want to do that again. And that's just kind of the way positive reinforcement works, doesn't it? That you know we yep. got some really good responses last time. I yelled and screamed and used all caps. So let's do that again. Yes, and unfortunately, the measured responses to those are. Uh, Often just so quiet, they they go missing. I don't know if you obviously you're a podcast guy, Luke. So do you, have you ever come across the podcast conversations with people who hate me? No. So here's a, there's, there's a recommendation. A, a, a podcast yeah. called People Who Hate Me. Uh, conversations with people who hate me. Wow. I've forgotten his name, but he was he's involved with the um, oh, this American Life and a few of those other podcasts, right. and he's um. You know, very left leaning, and he's gay, and he's you know got quite an out public persona around that. So of course he gets comment sections full of trolls. So he and one of the producers of This American Life sort of said, "Well, let's reach out to some of these people and actually get them on a show." So he's talking to people about. So, um, so you said this to me, and just wondering now, you know, 
what were you thinking at the time? Yeah, this was a really unkind thing to say. And the number of people who actually just sort of said, I don't even know, I don't even think like that. I wish that I hadn't said it. It was a crappy thing to say. Like sometimes you forget that there's a human on the other end of it. And how many of those conversations actually turned into something that is that was a respectful exchange of views and both the guest and the the host really walking away with a new experience of, of um, a new understanding of what somebody else might be experiencing. It was ex- it's amazing podcast. It really the, is. Great line by Abraham Lincoln that that's something along the line. It just sort of shows how great he was as a, as a president in a really tumultuous time. But it's a line along the lines of. Um, I don't like that man. I, I think I need to get to know him better. And I guess yeah. talking about there, isn't it? It's like, you know, someone who, who disagrees with me. So, but th- there's something about stress. There's someone that, that spends a lot of time talking about stress that the more stressed we get, the more, the more definite we get about things. You know, I'm right, you're wrong, bugger off. And yes. we, we become defensive, we become dumb and we just dig our heels in on, on whatever it is. And it, at some yeah. stage, um, Adam Grant's recent book called called Think Again, which is basically all about, you know, looking at the paradigms and our thought patterns and seeing which ones we need to change because they're outdated. Yeah. Such a, just a welcome thing that hopefully it turns into a massive bestseller and, and lots of people read it because we're, particularly in the States where they've got all that polarity and, you know, you're, you're, you're a female with brown hair and you're a Democrat. It's like it's, it's part of... It's becoming part of who people are, and they're outsourcing what their priorities are to a to a political party, which is just horrendous to me. Mm, yeah, and look, I think that it's uh, we've got the echo chambers around our use of browsers as well. You know, if, if you've mm. looked for if you've looked at sufficient pages over a period of you know even a couple of months on a new browser, it knows, it knows what, what you, you want to see, yeah. and you're not going to see opposing views. Yeah, no matter no matter how you know, no matter which sort of part of the bubble you live in, it's not gonna encourage you to shift your walls, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. So yeah, so then just get said and I think that it's you know, trying to pull all these things apart is probably less helpful than saying, Hey, altogether we've got a problem and it is causing negative feelings, it is causing stress, it is causing people to not sleep well and therefore to bicker more and, and to have more anxiety and more depression and actually just kind of say, you know, how can we as a community mitigate against some of these things? How can yeah. we? And and things like. I guess that's yeah, where we, mental health first aid comes in, doesn't it? That we yeah. all can have a little bit of awareness about that and a little bit of non-judgmental compassion about what other people are going through. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the skills that you need to, to have a conversation that you might think is just too hard. I mean, I'm sure perhaps um, you, you, you've had the experience of people sort of talking about, oh, look, I wanted to say something, but I just know I'll make everything worse. Yeah. And I think we've got to remember that if we, if we are kind, if we come from a genuinely caring place, and if instead of trying to give someone advice, we do our best to give them some accurate information or help them to find it and encourage them to, to seek help from whatever kind of expert might be appropriate, then we can't really go wrong. Yeah. No, it's um, it, it, and and if we do go wrong, if a person says, "What? Why would you be talking to me about this?" You can take a step back and say, "Okay, okay. look, there there might be somebody else you want to talk to about this," or look, I'm 
I'm really glad to hear that I was wrong. I, I, I was concerned that you'd been unhappy lately. But, hey, you know, just in the future, just so you know, you know, if you really were struggling with something, I'm cool to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, we can't really make things worse as long as we are kind. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that that's what mental health first aid does, doesn't it? It gives us yes. the tools to be able to have those conversations calmly and non-judgmentally. And that reaction you just described has never happened. Like I think I've asked 30 people mm. in the last couple <laughs> of years, have they having thoughts of taking their own life? Yes. Every single one of those thought 30 had said yes. And every single time we just sat there and sat and had a chat about it and worked out whether whether there's something else that needed to be done or not. And most of the time it was not because they've got through it and they're okay. Yeah. Being, having Isn't that, that amazing, skill to be right? able to sit comfortably with that uncomfortable conversation is I'm, I'm, I did mental health first aid for the first time three years ago. Um, a charity I work with called Orange Sky put me through it. Oh, and, I think it, may, it certainly made me a better optometrist. It made me understand how, how humans work better. And I'm now that I'm going out and running these courses myself, just listening to people when you say what you can get out of mental health first aid is, is just amazing. I think we all need to do it. I think, I think yeah. it's like CPR. We all, we all need to know how to do mental health first aid. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know, can I, I, I love that you've had so much experience talking about suicide um, with people because for me one of the most magic moments is realising when you ask that question, a person goes from being completely alone with yeah. the hardest decision they're ever going to have to make to suddenly they're not alone and the way that a lot of the urgency just disappears it's no longer this, oh, my God, if I'm having these thoughts, I'm going to end up dead. Yeah, you see it's, it. You see oh, the shoulders just go, oh, promise, I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah, and when your response isn't, right, we're going straight to the hospital, um, you know, when you can actually genuinely have a conversation, a real exchange of, wow, that sounds really, sounds like things have been really tough. You want to talk a little bit about that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's just incredible, that moment. Most, such a powerful thing for us to do and so is, simple and yet it sounds really scary. It does. Claire, thank you for all your work that you do. You, you've, made, you've made a massive difference just since watching your video that you can watch on YouTube and I'll share a link in the, in the show notes. <laughs> I've shared that with a few people that, are, that have got family members, you know, who are struggling with non-suicidal self-injury and the work that you do is amazing. I have had an absolute ball talking to you today. You're, right. you're my guru of all things mental health first aid. And, oh, uh, love it. Thank you very much for coming on the Reset Podcast. And, hey, look, Luke, you should let your uh, participants know as well that there is a course for learning about supporting somebody who's been engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. It's a four-hour course that we offer, um, again, through Mental Health First Aid, and they, people can find out more information about it on the website. Claire Kelly, thank you very much. You've been great. Thank you. Cheers.